0: After my cancer diagnosis, at the age of 32, my mom and I talked a lot about the shock of that diagnosis, given several doctors told us you're too young to have endometrial cancer. After much discussion, we began to feel driven to inform and help educate other young women about what symptoms they should be concerned. Having both been teachers, it seemed natural for us to look for a way to share Alex's cancer journey in order to help other young women avoid such a shocking diagnosis or possibly navigate a similar path. A podcast seemed the best way to get the word out, and that's how Down There Aware was born. Four years later, our mother-daughter duo has gone from educating and informing to advocacy and action with a fresh and sometimes very interesting and somewhat humorous multi-generational perspective. We look forward to sharing with you season four as we advocate, take action, and make it a priority to always be down Down there aware. aware.
1: Thanks for joining us today. We have a very special guest. Dr. Tanya Small is the Global Head of Oncology Medical Affairs and Chair of R&D Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Council at GSK. She has built and leads an organization of medical professionals focused on patient-driven science. She's passionate about creating groundbreaking solutions that will successfully deliver transformational medicines and access mechanisms, which are needed to revolutionize both the experience and outcomes of people living with cancer and their treatment teams. A board-certified pediatric hematologist oncologist, Dr. Small has deep experience in clinical research and drug development. She was trained in hematology oncology and bone marrow transplant at Columbia University where she also completed a genetic research fellowship. She subsequently continued her focus on both hematology and stem cell transplant at New York Presbyterian and received several grants for her translational research in gene therapy and regenerative medicine. In previous roles with Novartis Oncology and Ipsen, Dr. Small successfully led the launch of multiple oncology therapies while overseeing programs for both clinical development and medical affairs. She has also led many patient-centered and diversity programs, working closely with the U.S. FDA, Congress, and the American Society of Clinical Oncology to improve the diversity of enrollment in oncology clinical trials and elderly programs. Welcome, Dr. Small. Thank you so much for being here today. We're just so excited to have this conversation with you today.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to speak with you on this and all of your listeners.
1: Yes, and um you know your accomplishments are just incredible and uh we're we're so blessed that we are, have this opportunity and we are grateful that you have taken the time today so thank you so much um i wanted to get started with what made you make the shift from um practicing physician to working in biopharmaceuticals as you spoke about my bio um
2: you saw that i was a pediatric hematologist mm-hmm. oncologist and um You know, one of the things that I love about kids is just their unlimited potential of life, things that they can accomplish. And when you have a child come into your office that has cancer and, you know, based on the medicines in your hand, you know, the potential outcome it's, it's hard. And we know that medicine has changed lives have been saved and, and there's been a lot of advancement, but I still was losing patients and, um, it wasn't for, a lack of trying to save a lot of lives, but based on the tools that you have, that's, that's as good as you can get it. And so, um, over time, I realized the only way that I can really help to advance medicine, the only way I can save thousands of lives is to put my effort into helping develop the drugs that can do it. So, um, you know, at one point, I remember I just got tired of losing patience. I got tired of lacking the tools and the resources. And I got tired of telling patients, parents, I had nothing left. I got tired of telling patients, parents that I'll be coming to those funerals. And so um, I remember the day I just decided I want to, help contribute to develop drugs that can probably save more lives. And so I never looked back. Um, at that mm-hmm. point I came over to research and development in in biopharma. And to your point, what you read, we launched many drugs together. And obviously the fight is not over, but mm-hmm. you know, I'm trying to do my part to save the many patients, as many patients as I can or contribute to their well-being and their health as
1: best as I can. Absolutely. Well, and I can imagine how, you know, it's difficult for a family to go through cancer with a single person. And it's difficult for a person who's going through it themselves, especially with children. Um, But as a physician to see that day in and day out with dozens of patients, one after the other, you know, that has to be just emotionally taxing. Um, And so, you know, I can't imagine going through that. You know, what it is too. I mean, I think I think it
2: put life in perspective for mm. me um, because those, those moments where the patient leaves the clinic or leaves the hospital, mm-hmm. and you know, they came in with a devastating disease and they're leaving and they're thriving. I mean, to me were my best days and it just made me really think about how important and how fragile life is mm. and how you don't take any day for granted. So I think it made me respect life, respect humanity and and not as they say, not sweat the small stuff. Um yeah. that it gave me. And even during my time in the hospital, seeing the changes, seeing the new medicines come and seeing mm-hmm. their impact on patients again, that gave me hope. And that's mm-hmm. why I'm now to carry the torch. So there were happy moments, there were exciting moments, but then to yeah. your there were always devastating moments where you know, I wanted to, you know, you make promises to yourself, I, I can never again lose a patient this way. And every time, and when I started saying it too much, that's mm-hmm. when the shift happened.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So shifting gears, now you're with GSK. Um, can you tell us a little bit, are you seeing an increase in endometrial cancer in, in what you're seeing?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, to your point at GSK, a big, a big uh, focus of ours or the health of gyne, gynecological malignancies. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things we've been doing over the last few years is really developing, trying to develop medicines and really understand the trends, um, the disease, and develop the right medicines for patients and really try to make that, per, um, take that personalized approach. So when we look at endometrial cancer, which is a big focus of ours, you are seeing an increase in in endometrial cancer. And as you know, and as your listeners probably know, there are two different types of endometrial cancer based Mm -hmm. on histology, right? Endometrioid and non-endometrioid. And particularly in the non-endometrioid cancer, um, we're seeing a big increase, particularly in certain patient populations.
1: Wow. So Um, we understand, and we've talked about on our podcast before, um, but maybe you can help us understand a little bit better. Um, black women are diagnosed with endometrial cancer at nearly twice and have nearly twice the risk of dying as white women do. Um, what research has identified this? Are there specific factors like environmental or genetic, um, you know, that might cause a disproportionate diagnosis of, uh, endometrial cancer in women of color? So...
2: I mean, and to your point, I mean, that, that data, especially over the last like five years is really starting to take up. Um, so particularly in that non-endometrioid, um, subtype, mm-hmm. um, which is more aggressive and mm-hmm. has poor prognosis, we're starting to see a big increase in, in, in black women, um, being diagnosed and dying from endometrial cancer. Um, and, we know not even just Black women, but there's an increase um, in, in, in Asian women as well as Hispanic women, but particularly Black women, because they actually have twice the mortality rate. And you wonder how can a race have twice the right. rate, right? What is there? So so part of the challenge is that there's they have the more aggressive subtype. And what we don't know is we don't fully understand
1: no. this subtype,
2: particularly for Black women, and that's because of clinical trials. When you look at a lot of the, the diagnosis, as well as the data that we have, the molecular data that we have, it's from white women. Yeah. And so do we, so we need to understand a lot more about the subtype that black women have. Why do they have it? What's, what's the, what's, what's the molecular um, basis of this? We don't have a lot of genomic profile and we don't really understand. And that's again, because um, a lot of them were not on clinical trials. You only have about five percent of Black women on clinical trials, yet they make up thirteen percent of the population. So understanding that, so that we can create the right medicines to treat it, is a big challenge. And then the second challenge is, um, in terms of getting diagnosed, or getting diagnosed later, and that's a whole different, um, a different challenge. And I guess you'd ask why, you know, um, why is there a delay in diagnosis? And a lot of it is in terms of education, in terms of access to practitioners and this multifactorial. But if I think about why the increase and why increase in incidence and the increase in death, it to me, they really fall into those two buckets. Really having the more aggressive form and not understanding it enough to actually create the right medicines. And the second is the delayed in diagnosis and access, a third really access to to treatment.
1: Sure. Uh-huh. And, you know, and that's something that we have talked about in those clinical trials and, um, you know, historical data of things, um, you know, that are being tested and it's like, that population doesn't even get this kind of cancer or isn't, you know, predisposed, like let's shift gears. So what efforts are underway to ensure that women of color are more represented in these clinical trials? Yeah, that's a
2: very, very good question. And I have to tell you, so being in pharma for over a decade, (laughs) I'll leave it there, a decade plus. (laughs) Um, um, There has been a big shift. And um, in terms of efforts to enroll Mm -hmm. Black, Latino, and actually more underrepresented um, women and men of color. color, If I even take a step back, um, I don't know if I've said this out loud before, but I remember even in med school and- me raising a flag where I saw risk factor for death. And it just had like certain things like hypertension, cancer rates, breast cancer, all these different things, black race. And I used to wonder how can a race be and have an increased risk of death? And it didn't say why, it just said it is because. Mm -hmm. Now to your point, clinical, I think we're starting to see those stats more when it comes to breast cancer, when it comes to your point, endometrial cancer, when you're saying, how Mm -hmm. can a race have twice the mortality rate? of another race, there has been a big push to increase um, the representation in clinical trials so that we can understand it more. Um, And in pharma, I would say beyond GSK, across pharma, there has been a ton of money. So I don't think it's just the questions being asked, but I'm starting to see a lot of investments in in trying Mm. to raise awareness and trying to do something about it. Previously, the biggest challenge was obviously we all know there is historical reasons why there is mistrust between Mm -hmm. the medical community and really um, African-Americans. And a lot of people talk about Tuskegee, but it goes so far beyond Tuskegee. Mm -hmm. Um, But the biggest challenge was a lot of people said, well, it's a mistrust issue. So there's nothing Mm -hmm. we can do about it. But when you start really going deeper, yes, there's a mistrust issue, but it's so much more than that. It's practical things. It's it's the study designs. And I'll talk a little bit about that. So again, the way I think about it is you have actually the study itself mm-hmm. doesn't allow for a lot of Black participation because some of the eligibility criteria automatically mm-hmm. eliminates them. A lot of the baseline labs were done again a lot the standards were either white males or white females. And sometimes you know based on based on ethnicity and race, there may be differences in terms of what baseline is normal. So again those things a lot of it had automatically eliminated mm-hmm. um, particularly women of color. And then when it comes to the consent forms, it's in a specific, it's done in a specific way and, and their cultural differences in terms of the way people interpret information, the way people make mm-hmm. decisions. And a lot of those weren't taken into consideration. And then the other piece that, that to me was a big challenge was even being offered clinical trials. There was a study done that was presented at ASCO when it came to women with breast cancer, 80% of women said, black women, if they were offered a clinical trial, they would jump on it. 40% of them only were offered the clinical trial. So we know there's some real implicit biases or assumptions made that these women would not participate in a clinical trial. And Mm. therefore they weren't even offered the clinical trial. And then the last bucket is the practicality to me in terms of challenges. Um, A lot of the, the centers that run clinical trials are in academic centers that a lot of times are not in the community. So mm-hmm. a lot of times beyond not offering, they didn't have access to these trials, access to transportation. When someone is diagnosed with with cancer, they're not waiting to be diagnosed. They have their lives that they're living. So how do you stop what yeah. you're doing? It's a goal, 30 or 40 miles to this center. So there are so many different factors that mm-hmm. prevent Women of color from getting on these trials that goes beyond just a trust issue. And I right now is where I started, I started to see people addressing them one by one. So um, there's a lot that we're doing. And I guess we could talk about it a little bit later and how we're doing it, but there's a lot that we're doing to address each one of those pieces mm-hmm. so that we can make sure that we increase the, the um, enrollment of, of, of Black women in clinical trials, including making sure that their physicians are actually equipped with a clinical trial so that they can get on it.
1: Are there ways that we are training medical professionals? And are there ways that, um, that, you know, folks who are in the know and aware of these disparities and are trying to make headway, um, are they getting it out to the masses where the physicians are, um, and where those communities are, so that they're more aware and Um and are better trained so that, like you said, they are offering this and it's not making an assumption that oh they can't make it or oh they can't do this and and actually giving that opportunity.
2: Yeah. So if we want to talk about the awareness piece. Like I said, that's kind of my middle pocket in terms of making sure physicians are offering them. So Mm -hmm. the first piece is recognizing all of us have our own implicit biases. All of us, Mm -hmm. right? Um, it's just based on where what we know and we make quick decisions. Um without a lot of facts and you have to do that to operate. So I think that um, one of the big push that we're doing is making sure that physicians are trained mm. in terms of how, in terms of clinical trials and people of color, making sure they understand the data, making sure they, they're trained on how to offer these trials, making sure they're trained on the disparities. So um, at GSK, we offer a lot of these trainings. And actually, if you're going to be a part of our clinical trials, you now need to be trained on this, and I when I look at cross pharma, a lot of pharmaceutical companies are requiring training in terms of unconscious biases. How do you mm-hmm. offer clinical trials based on diverse populations? How do you be more culturally competent? Um, so that's one thing. But then I also think the second piece is making sure patients themselves and the communities are educated, and like Absolutely. programs like yours are critical critical to do that. And I mean, that's why I was so excited to come on your show, because I think the reach that you have in the education that you're providing is so important. How do we even go? How do we go into where to the community centers and make sure mm-hmm. that that the communities understand these disparities? Because I think if we people understand this is a healthcare crisis, it is a yeah. crisis when you have a race of people dying at the, twice the rate of others is a healthcare crisis yes. when you have a group of people who their diagnosis is being delayed. If you have a healthcare crisis when, where patients, we don't even understand the details of their of their um, genomic profile because mm-hmm. we don't have the data, it is a healthcare crisis where they're not even coming to clinical trials so that we can develop the right medicines for them. And I think the more we, we shine a light on this within their community, from a grassroots level, from a patient mm-hmm. advocacy level, from those that have a voice that reaches the masses, as well as the physicians to empower those patients. I think we won't make a change. So I think it's a multi-factor, multi, I guess, a concerted effort from physicians to the community, to people Mm -hmm. like you, grassroots, to their community centers, to their, wherever they get their information from. Let's Mm -hmm. make sure that everyone understands that this is a true healthcare crisis that we need to address.
1: Yeah. And so that's, you know, kind of leads me into my next question. So, you know, we've talked about the physicians and we're educating them and that's awesome. But on the other hand, um, you also have, and like you talked about the trust issue and it goes beyond that, but um, the community. So how, what can medical practitioners or other people in the community do to increase awareness amongst those underrepresented communities um, to enhance disease understanding and the importance of participating in these clinical trials? Part of the challenge is a lot of their physicians that they trust,
2: that they go to in their community are not even offered the clinical trials. Mm. And one of the things that I think is going to be really important is as a drug developer, making sure that we are contributing to upskilling those physicians in their community. Let's Mm -hmm. bring the education into those communities so that the physicians are, are educated about the data. They're educated about the first signs of endometrial cancer. Mm-hmm. They know what to say to those patients. And let's offer those, let's skill, let's upskill them so that we can actually offer them those clinical trials. So the clinical trials can be brought into the community mm-hmm. instead of instead of taken away from the community and have those patients leaving their their community. So let's bring the clinical trials to the physicians mm-hmm. that they actually trust. And I am betting you if we can actually take it into their community, you'll have a big increase. There's some data that shows it's very interesting. Again, from the breast cancer data that I told you in terms of those mm-hmm. patients that actually would want to be on a clinical right. trial, their data that shows when they're offered clinical trials, they actually join the clinical trials. So it's not from a for a lack of wanting, not wanting to yeah. join, it's being offered. So I my biggest focus is how can I take these trials and put it into their communities? How Mm -hmm. can we make sure those physicians are skilled to run clinical trials and how do we make sure we meet those patients where they are instead of having them leave their community? Um, So I think that's a big piece that a lot of us are not yet addressing, but I Mm -hmm. think it would, it would move the needle tremendously.
1: Yeah. Well, and, you know, as a lay person, I think, I mean, I'm just kind of shocked that not all physicians have access to these clinical trials and like, you know, thinking about it, okay, so you're not educated in this part or you don't have this training or whatever, but um, it's just one of those things where it it blows my mind that it's not, you're a physician, you have access to this. (laughs) And so, you know, (laughs) that we need to, but you're right, you know, these um, practitioners are in their communities and people trust. You know their doctor who they've seen for years and years and who birthed their babies and you know who all of these things and um so I think you're absolutely right we need to take it to where these communities are yes. and and that bypasses the trust you don't have to earn trust you just have to bypass it and get to the people who they already trust
2: exactly so that's where so there's a big push for us in GSK and and like I said it's not just GSK it's it's Biofarm in general I what I'm noticing is there we are really trying to get into those communities now. Mm -hmm. Um, And over the last three years, we've been really successful in opening trials inside the communities, whether they're satellite sites or they're new sites. Um, Mm -hmm. But we are, that's a big focus. For us, um, when you look at even a lot of the data, most trials are offered, like I said, in the academic centers. For us, we've kind of flipped it on its head and and about 75% of our trials are actually in the community. And- And we are seeing a huge increase in African-American enrollments in our trials because of, I mean, not not only because of that, but that is one of the factors that's contributing. And until that happens, I think the other piece is, how do we create practical solutions? So making sure that their physicians are informed and until they're able to get on trials, how do we make sure that we equip the patients with resources so that they can travel? Mm -hmm. I mean, think about, um, again, for endometrial cancer, a woman who is working, she may have her kids, she has her day-to-day stuff. And I'm asking you now to travel 10 miles Mm -hmm. out. I'm asking you to donate a lot of time, go back and forth to do labs. How can I relieve a lot of your burden? And so, um, you know, there are things such as helping to, to finance the commute. Mm -hmm finance your food finance just the little things that are required of you to jo- to to be a part of these clinical trials
0: right. so
2: that that we can relieve a lot of those logistical burdens because it's it's a lot it's a lot mm-hmm. for us to expect someone to understand the diagnosis accept the diagnosis do their day-to-day stuff and then add an have an additional burden so we're doing all that we can to alleviate a lot of those I guess the practical day to day have to go through. So, I think if we can, as a community, tackle mm-hmm. both where we are relieving their day to day burden so that they can join these clinical trials and we can get more data so that we can develop the right drugs, educate them, and also um, upskill the physicians in their communities so that they can run the clinical trials. I mean, mm-hmm. those two alone, I think, would will, will, will move the needle.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So what, is there something that if a woman is diagnosed, but feels that she is receiving subpar care or, um, you know, feels that, um, they're, she's not receiving opportunities like this. What can an individual do if they find themselves in that situation?
2: So it breaks my heart when, when you hear people actually feel that way, but the positive thing is that they recognize that they deserve better.
1: Mm. And,
2: um, and and that's the first step, knowing that you are entitled to be to to get the best treatment, the best education, and you're empowered to do all that you can to do so. So yeah. I think I think what can she do? I think the first thing is understand that Google is not a doctor because <laughs> sometimes <laughs> Google is scarier than anything else. All of a sudden you start seeing right. all the different symptoms and all and you think you have a, a whole other different thing going on. Um, right. but I think there I mean what I love about different patient advocacy groups and different patient navigators is that they're about that person diagnosed with the disease and seeing the whole person. And they have Mm -hmm. so many things to offer to make sure that they're thinking about the whole person, not just the disease. So I think the first thing that I would always recommend is find a patient advocacy group Mm -hmm. and a patient navigator. Um, because they have so many resources available um, to them start there because, and then on top of that, because then you start getting a lot of different support pieces. You have, they have, they have access to educational tools, emotional support, which is to me so important. Again, pragmatic solutions, pragmatic support. Mm -hmm. They can help you find clinical trials in your area. They can help you navigate. Your patient, your your patient navigator can help you navigate. Find other people who've had, who've been diagnosed too, Mm
1: -hmm. who've been
2: through it. Um, but the most important thing is getting in that driver's seat and then finding, and this is really important, finding a doctor that you feel comfortable with, finding a doctor that you feel understands what you're going through. Find a doctor that you feel comfortable sharing Mm -hmm. with. There's no excuse for a physician not to to really try to understand a patient and what they're going through, but there's some that just don't. And so match is so important. Finding a physician that you truly trust where both of you together are making the decisions or helping. um, Well that person's helping you make the right decision for yourself. Because one of the things I like to tell my team is people, patients are people diagnosed with a disease and we are heterogeneous. We have different needs, different Mm -hmm. desires, and different designs, even in terms of outcome. It is important for a physician not to impose his or her outcome on you. Mm-hmm. So getting to getting a physician that understands what you want. Yep. And then helping you come up with the optimal treatment for that to me mm-hmm. is so critical. So patient navigators, advocacy groups, making sure you're really well plugged in understanding what options are available to you and then the most important piece is finding that physician i don't care if you have to go to two or three physicians until you find that physician your health is everything it's worth
1: it yeah it's well and, you know it. we we've talked about that um in terms of um finding you know a second opinion a third opinion and how sometimes you know myself included it's well am i gonna hurt the doctor's feelings if i go over a second opinion and it's like honey, it doesn't matter if you hurt their feelings. First off, they're professionals and they're used to this. But secondly, your health is paramount and you need to make sure that you're putting it first. And if you don't even just like vibe with that doctor or you get, you know, a feeling or you're like, I don't love that plan. I want to see if there's something else, you need to do it. And, you know, for my cancer in particular, it was relatively slow growing. I learned later um, and so it wasn't an aggressive form of cancer. And so I went from diagnosis on Tuesday, first oncology um, appointment on Friday, the next Tuesday I had my hysterectomy. And so I felt kind of rushed into that. And um, looking back, I, and I don't, I don't have any regrets, it was absolutely the right decision for me, but I do wish I had talked to another physician, had a second opinion, taken a little bit more time with that. And so I think it's really important, like you said, to make sure that the um, doctor isn't imposing what they want on you, um, because looking back, that's very much what happened in my circumstance, and so um, that really resonates with me. Of no, you need to find a, somebody who is going to work with you, listen to you, and help you achieve your desired outcome.
2: Yeah, I cannot underscore that more. Like that is so important. And, and to your point, hurting a physician's a feeling let me be clear medicine is a service profession mm. it's a service we're like we are serving you this is what i mean when i went into medicine that's what when you decide to go that is what you're that's what you're doing right. And if, if what i'm doing is not serving and meeting your needs it's not about me it's about mm. you and what's in your best interest and so never never be afraid, never feel bad that the service that I'm providing is not meeting your needs. You are the person <laughs> who I am serving and you deserve those, the service that meets your needs. Always, 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 always. So if I can say that loudly <laughs> from a physician, from a drug developer, from, from a patient, like I want all of your listeners to know I am. we are providing you a service. If our mm-hmm. service is meeting your need, it's time to go to someone else who can, whose service will, it is, it is, it is your life.
1: And that is the most important thing. Yes. You only have one. You, <laughs> you know, we need to protect it. We need to, oh man, that, is, um, it that really resonates with me. So thank you for saying that, especially from, you know, a physician's perspective, right. That um, you've been there, you understand and to hear that, you know, physicians go into practice to serve and to help and, um, and so, you know that's really what you're there for. And I think um, sometimes we can lose sight of that, especially in an emotional time like the cancer diagnosis and things like that. So um keeping in mind that uh, finding those communities and also trusting your gut and knowing that you know, maybe you need that second opinion, you know, because um, if you don't trust your physician to be um, helping you, you know to de- find your desired outcome, you're gonna kind of, be wary all the way along, and um, so that trust is really the foundation of good treatment.
2: Yeah, I could say even now. Um, I mean, obviously, like my physicians know that I'm a physician, and so, but but it's funny because sometimes I'll keep asking them questions until I feel comfortable. They're things, right? Like, and there are times some of them would start laughing because they're like, "Well, Tanya, um, um, you know, you're going to continue to ask the questions. Oh, yeah, yeah, because I need." All this information mm-hmm. before I make a decision. Now I can look it up and I can do the research, but we're but but we're having this discussion, and I need to make sure I am comfortable before yep. I say yes or no. And I and that's the same thing with your listeners. And and I could say there are times when patients would have me ask questions for about an hour, and then I'm like, you know what? And then go home and come back, and we can talk. We'll continue mm-hmm. to talk until we get to a point where you feel comfortable with the decision that you are about to make. Right. I will provide you with all the facts. I'll provide you with whatever information you need, Mm -hmm. but let's not move forward until I know you're comfortable with this decision and we may have to move fast, but I am here to answer those questions and you deserve that. You deserve it. Right.
1: Right. And I, you know, I think, um, you saying to the patient, you deserve it to make sure that they understand that, you know, you are not. A cog in a wheel, right? Like you are just you are important, and your diagnosis is just as devastating as this person's diagnosis, and your outcome is just as important as somebody else's diagnosis, regardless of your background, your ethnicity, your you know heritage. It it is important, and you are a person who we care about, who we want to live through this, because ultimately, that's what you know we want to save lives.
2: Yeah, and that's why, I mean, even now my hat for as a clinical researcher, I mean, that's where I think why sometimes, I mean, I get a little frustrated and sad because I don't think even clinical studies are presented in a way to patients for them to understand is so important. One of the things we've been trying to do is create, tell it, we keep talking about this, this personalized medicine, this personalized mm-hmm. approach. Um, again, thinking about what I like to call patient-centered drug development, a patient-driven science. Mm-hmm. Um, the person diagnosed with disease should be driving our science, should be driving the drugs that we develop, mm-hmm. We should not just develop drugs and retrofit them back into right retrofit patients into the, the, the drug yeah. itself. We should be developing the drugs based on the needs of that patient. Mm-hmm. So in order to create personalized medicine, we need patients to come on these clinical trials so that we can truly understand their disease, understand their heterogeneous needs and develop the drugs to meet them. And so when I look at, to your point earlier about endometrial cancer and, and why is it that, that, you know, you have twice the mortality rate. And there's so many unanswered questions that the more a patient can understand, they have a right to join a clinical trial. They have a right to make sure we're developing the right medicines for them. Mm -hmm. Um, the more they understand that, I think the more we can tailor our medicine and really develop the right medicines for patients living with endometrial cancer, diagnosed with endometrial cancer.
1: Absolutely. 100%. Shifting gears a little bit, September is um, Gynecologic Cancer Awareness Month. We are uh, um, so proud of that. And September 20th, is World Gynecologic Oncology Day or World Go Day. So um, this year's theme we understand is go for testing. So what types of testing can help improve outcomes um, of the treatment for um, treatment journey for patients? Um, and what kind of testing are we focusing on for this gynecologic oncology awareness?
2: So, just in general, I mean, first of all, I'm so happy that that go for testing
1: is, is the theme because again, yes. we
2: now we're talking about personalized medicine. We've we've developed mm-hmm. just in general so many different medicines based on our understanding of different mutations and even mm. um, um, different prognostic factors of different mutations. So, so um, the more people are tested earlier, the the more we can understand what your risk factors are. So, things mm. like a really easy one is like the like BRCA testing. Mm-hmm. Right? So people call it BRCA um, testing. But we know the risk factors now if you have this gene. And we know we'll continue to monitor you for certain things and make certain decisions um, based on that. Um, mm-hmm. So that improve your chance of survival, decrease your risk of even developing cancer. So something like that, just going in for testing, understanding your status, your, your genetic status can yep. help prevent. Or, um, di- or diagnose early, um, mm-hmm. different types of cancer. So that's one of the things that we are really pushing for. And quite frankly, I think the more people get tested, the more we even learn about, right. about um, different mutations and different um, ge- um genetic predispositions. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of things that we learned is actually from just under, looking at different mutations, then correlating it with 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 different cancers and mm. then um, developing um, treatments for it. So the more people can get tested, the more we even can do more genomic profiling, the more drugs we can develop that actually address those, those challenges. Yeah. So I think there's a, there's a, an immediate, um, there's an immediate benefit and there's a futuristic benefit. So the immediate benefit mm-hmm. is get tested and then let us see if we can identify certain things early so that we can take the right preventative measures. And then the second piece is we can understand a lot more and and hopefully develop the right medicines for for different um, molecular profiles that we have not yet developed the right medicines for. But in the future we can, the more we learn, the more we can correlate with different Mm -hmm. drugs we can develop. So I am so excited, so excited that that is a big focus because I think it's gonna help us stay and it's gonna help us in the future to really do optimal personalized medicines.
1: Do you see a future where, you know, this genetic testing is just done in adolescence, right? It's, it's along with your um, standard immunizations that you're getting. It's like, yeah, you're going to get your DNA test.
2: Imagine do you do that. that
1: in the future? I, see,
2: you know what? Here's the thing. I actually think that's ideal. I don't think many people think it yet because people are saying now you're going to violate, like, you know, you're coming sure. in to violate the, and there's too many unknowns. However, the more we're educated about genetic testing, the more people can see the preventative measures that can be taken, the more we can actually develop the right medicines for different mutations. Um, I actually think we will get there in the future where people can see the benefit and therefore understand it's important to test these earlier. Now, a lot of times we will test in, in adolescent medicine or even in pediatrics earlier on if there's a family history. Sure. So we've already started doing that, um, I mean, decades ago. But now I think in the future, that will be ideal because we are developing medicine based on mutations mm-hmm. and understanding um, a different um, understanding the nuances of diseases. Um, yeah. I think we're going to get there very soon. And I actually think medicine is going to improve based on that. I think we're going to learn a lot. We're going to develop a lot more personalized medicine. I think we're going to do a better job in addressing specific diseases um, a lot early. So hopefully um, we'll be doing that sooner than later in my lifetime, in your lifetime. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Just as a, a routine approach, um, routine, you know, you test for certain things, you give your immunization and you, you, you check for different um uh,
1: genetic genomic profiling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just like you get your eye test, you go in and get your hearing tested, you to go get your blood tested, <laughs> <Get> your, <laughs> swab test.
2: your cheek, whatever yeah. it is. You know what your regular labs, right? You do your regular labs in general, mm-hmm. plus the, your genetic testing. Now remember again, they, people are, we are doing basic testing, but we are not sure. doing bonafide um, sure. genetic testing to really look at all the different genetic markers mm-hmm. that, that have the potential to, to cause diseases and so that we can get early, um, start preventing it early.
1: Absolutely. So as we wrap up, where can people look for more information if this sparks an interest or, um, and what can people do um, in their own communities or to help other communities Um, you know what what's a a call to action here for our listeners? Definitely patient advocacy. (laughs) I,
2: I cannot, I cannot emphasize that enough. Um for anyone who has been diagnosed, or actually if you have not been diagnosed, if you know someone who's been diagnosed with endometrial cancer, if you have a family member, if you just want more information, I would definitely say reach out to patient advocacy groups. Um, because they just have a plethora of information mm-hmm. and the right people that can guide you through it. Um, the other call to action is just this mindset, understanding that you are empowered. This is your life. You are the mm. ultimate decision maker. The rest of us are here to serve you and help you through it. But in the end, it is your decision and you deserve the best care possible. So if those two things, if that's all I leave you with, um, that's a third one, sorry. Join a clinical trial if you Mm -hmm. can, if it's available. The more information that we have, first of all, it's um, obviously innovative therapies um, come from clinical trials. And the Mm -hmm. more information we have, the more we can develop the right medicines. Um, So those are the three things, patient advocacy, know that you are in control of your health mm-hmm. and you serve the best. And a third, if you can join a clinical trial so we can continue to develop the right, develop the right medicines for you.
1: Absolutely. Now, is that something a patient, um, if they are not offered any clinical trials, is that something that they can ask their physician Absolutely. for?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Ask them, ask them. Um, and actually what I do recommend is when you when you go speak to your physician, sometimes it's hard to remember all the things you want to ask them when you're there. So if you can write down all your questions, Mm -hmm. come prepared. Oh Um, man.
1: If my mom was here, she would just be (laughs) praising because she takes a little notebook to every doctor's appointment and she has her questions and she has like, when she was going through my cancer and other things, she had questions for the doctors about me. Um, So yes, we are advocates for ask the questions, come prepared make sure that you are putting your health first and that you're advocating for yourself because not every doctor will and not every, you know, situation you're in will people put you at the top when that's where you need to be when it's your health is concerned.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. You are you should be at the top. And physicians are human. You have good ones, you have bad ones, right? But this is your life, your health, and you own it. So I
1: love Yes. I completely agree
2: with her.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I will. I will. Thank you so much, Dr. Small. It has been uh, just amazing to hear about everything uh, you know that you are pushing forward and the moves that you're making and the waves you're making in you um, know helping to identify why um, underrepresented communities, specifically Black women, are um, you know so disadvantaged when it comes to being diagnosed and being treated and living through endometrial cancer. Um, And so we applaud what you're doing um, and are so excited to help share this message. Um, And so this is going to go up before a world on world gynecologic oncology day. And so we'll post it all out. And we are just so, so grateful for you um, and what you're doing. And also that you just took some time out today to share with our listeners because it's an important message. um, And we know that uh, it needs to needs to get out and be spread far and wide.
2: Well, thank you. And this is really, really, really dear to my heart. I mean, like I said, this is a healthcare crisis to me that I want to do all I can to to, to help with. So thank you for having me and and for for just listening to my thoughts on this. And thank you to your audience. Whatever I can do, just let me know. So thank you.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Down There Aware. Be sure to like and subscribe on our new YouTube channel, as well as on your favorite podcast platform. You can find us at Down There Aware on all social media sites, Twitter, Pinterest, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram. If you have it, we're there at Down There Aware. You can learn more on our website, www.downthereaware.com and always get in touch with us, downthereaware at gmail.com. See you next week.